Okay, we can do a little better. Good morning. All right. Like I said, good to be awake at the beginning of the sermon at least, right? Uh, glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, we are going to... Uh, uh, this is really the second to last part in what is going to be a 13-part series on the topic of idolatry. And so uh, I was asked this morning, uh, I came into church and there was no uh, box being produced out of the idol factor. And I said, that's because we're getting down to the end. And uh, we are going to have a couple more sermons, part 12 this morning. Uh, I've entitled The Devastation of Idolatry. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and get them out at this time and turn with me uh, to the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament, one of the major prophets. Uh, if you uh, happen to grab your NIV Pew Bible that's in front of you uh, will be on page 591. 591. Uh, if you don't have access to either of those scriptures, the text uh, should be on the screen. And so uh, this morning, part 12, the devastation of idolatry. Uh, for those of you who might be new or jumping in late on this series, we have been talking about uh, the subject of idol, uh, of idolatry. John Calvin uh, once said that the human heart is a perpetual um, uh, factory of idols. Uh, that is, out of, our, out of our fallen nature, we produce things to worship uh, rather than God alone. And we've talked about several uh, possible idols uh, throughout the course of our summer. As you can see, family, romance, pleasure, work, children, all sorts of things, money, uh, all sorts of things we've talked about as potential idols. And what we're going to do just uh, as a heads up for the next couple weeks is uh, today, part 12, we're going to talk about the devastation that idolatry can bring into our lives. That is, if we fall uh, into idolatry, what are the practical effects on our life? Uh, four things we're going to see this morning. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. And then uh, next Sunday, we're going to wrap up our sermon series and we're going to be talking about destroying idols. And so we're going to talk about how it is that we can destroy uh, the idols in our lives that we've been to hopefully discovering this summer. We've been talking about Sunday morning and then how we can not only destroy those idols in our lives, but we can replace our idols with the true God of Jesus Christ and how we can turn and be satisfied in Jesus. Um, by way of also a, a kind of a heads up, uh, next Sunday we plan on taking communion together. Uh, so really encourage you to, to be here for that. And I promise you uh, that it will be uh, most likely a communion that you won't soon forget. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be participative in, in, in a way that's more than normal. And uh, I'll just leave that for your uh, for your minds to wonder about. Uh, but really encourage you to do that uh, next Sunday. So uh, let's do this. Let's open to Isaiah chapter 44. And uh, uh, let's pray before we get into it. Father, we do ask for your presence this morning. Spirit, we ask that you would please come and that you would speak to us. Uh, Spirit, would you open up our hearts? Would you help us? not to be hardened towards your word, but to be soft. Um, as the Puritans of old have said, that uh, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. And I pray, Father, that we would have hearts of ice, uh, that as we encounter your word, that our hearts would melt, and that we would be responsive to your word and not harden ourselves towards it. Father, I do pray as we wrap up this series on idolatry that you would not uh, be wrapping up uh, the searching out of and exposing and replacing idols in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that that would be an ongoing experience for all of us as we begin to see that uh, we don't just have uh, character flaws or sins that oftentimes the root of what we do and are driven by is because we worship another God other than you. And we want to worship you and you alone. And so, Spirit, come help us this morning particularly to see the utter devastation that idolatry can bring in our lives. May it be uh, a fair and good and healthy warning. And may we begin even to see even more so uh, these effects on our own lives, and we would repent and turn from our idols and trust and love and serve Jesus Christ. We ask it in his great name. Amen. 
So I want to begin this morning with uh, the devastation of idolatry, uh, Isaiah 44. And I want to begin just with a, a, a question. Uh, I think there are times uh, as parents, and I, I've not quite gotten to this point yet, but some of you who have older kids probably have gotten to this point. And that is when your child is doing something that uh, you know is wrong and they know is wrong, and you've asked them, well, why is it, Johnny, that you hit so-and-so back at the, at the playground? Or why is it that you said this? Or why is it that you did that? Sometimes uh, they may say uh, this infamous or famous line, well, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it, mom and dad. Everybody else is doing X, Y, and Z. And sometimes uh, our response is, if we're clever parents as well, Johnny or Susie, if everybody was jumping off a cliff, then would you do it? Have you ever said those words to your kids? If you haven't, you might. Well, what if they were jumping off a cliff? Then would you follow them? Then would you do it? And uh, sometimes the kid will wise up and say, well, no. And then sometimes they will say, uh, well, yes, of course I will do it. Um, uh, everybody else is doing it. There's this temptation to do what everybody else is doing. And I want to... Uh, introduce our, our our text this morning in the book of Isaiah by saying that that's what pretty much God's people of the Old Testament did. Uh, when you look and you read through the, the whole of the Old Testament, the most frequently talked about sin, the most frequently uh, uh, issue or struggle that God's people had was idolatry. Uh, it comes up numerous times, and so it's significant both for God's people of old and God's people today. But they struggled, Israel struggled with idolatry, and that's because when they entered into the promised land, they were surrounded by peoples who had a plethora of gods. Uh, it was called polytheism. They, they worshipped many gods, and Israel was unique in the sense that they had entered into a covenant relationship with the one true God, with Yahweh. And God says, I should be your God and there should be no other gods before me. And the consistent and constant seduction for God's people of old was not to forsake the worship of Yahweh, not to forsake worshiping the true God, but to add other gods to the true God. This is significant because what's they, what they did was they didn't say, forget you, God, we're going to worship all these gods. They said, we're still going to try to worship the one true God, but just in case you aren't going to meet our needs, just in case your word is not true, just in case, just to cover our bases, we are going to worship all of these other gods as well. And my suggestion to you is that as Christians, we can often do the same thing. If not, we don't do it, I don't think, intentionally, but practically on a functional level, what I think we often do is we say, I worship and love and serve Jesus but I might worship other idol gods as well. And so this got Israel into trouble. In fact, it brought utter devastation to the nation of Israel. Uh, basically, when we get into the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes to the southern portion of the nation. You have Israel proper in the north, and then you have Judah in the south. And this prophet comes along by the name of Isaiah. And God speaks to his people in the south through Isaiah. Now, the people in the north had already been captive. They had already been conquered. They had been uh, been destroyed, and they had been carried away into captivity called the exile. And then God comes along through the prophet Isaiah and says, you know what happened to your northern brothers? What devastation happened to them? The same thing is going to happen to you, primarily due to your idolatry, primarily due to your penchant for idolatry. And so God comes along through the prophet Isaiah to speak to a wayward people, to a people who were on the edge of idolatry, to a people who had essentially said, God, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is worshiping idols. 
And, and everybody else at that point was jumping off the proverbial cliff, if you will, into idolatry. And God says, if you jump off that cliff, I will take you into exile. And so what we're going to see this morning is this. Let's, let's read the text, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 20. And then what we'll do is we'll go back and name four, four ways that idolatry can devastate our lives. And so, uh, four ways. Let's just read through the text together, Isaiah chapter 44. And uh, we'll start with verse 6. Start with verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I, did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock that I, I know, not one. <clears throat> All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with, with a compass. He shapes it in a human form, human form in all of its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, from the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows, he bows down to it and he worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? And he concludes, Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So we have the reading of God's word. So the question is, what what kind of effects, what are the consequences, practically speaking, of, of idolatry in our life? I just want to suggest to you four things, four devastations, if you will. So if you're taking notes, jot down these four things. Number one, the first devastation of idolatry that we see from this passage is that idolatry diminishes God's character. 
Idolatry diminishes God's character, and we see this in verses 6 through 8. Basically, the section begins with a strong contrast. If you recall, God begins the passage and he says, this is who I am. And if you'll notice, he uses a string of words to describe himself, a string of titles, if you will. God is declaring his character to the nation of Israel. He's declaring his character to you and I, as opposed by way of contrast to the lack of any character of the idols. And basically God is saying this, I'm the only God who can give you what you need. I'm the only one who is sufficient to to be God. So why in the world would you turn to idols? And so the first devastation in my, in my life and in your life when we uh, turn to worshiping idols is that we diminish God's character. That is, we make him look less than what he really is. Let me point out just uh, three character traits that we see in this text. In verse 6, uh, and there are several character traits, but verse 6, we see God portrays himself as king. Notice how he describes him, himself in verse 6. He says this, as I flip backwards. Verse 6, this is what the Lord God says, Israel's king. And so God from the get-go says, I'm really the only one worthy, worthy of obedience. I really can provide for you perfect leadership, perfect direction. I am the good and perfect king. You should follow me. Right after that, we see not only is God king, but he's savior. Verse 6, Israel's king and redeemer or savior. He says, I am really the only one who can deliver you from your sin. I can deliver you from your folly. I can deliver you from your trouble. And so when you are in trouble, turn to me. I am your redeemer. I am your king. And then finally in verse 8, notice he uses the word rock. He says, God is, I am your security. God as security. Verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, don't tremble, don't be afraid. He's talking to a group of people who are in exile. They're away from their home. And he says, don't tremble, don't be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? Which he did. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. That is, he is the only one who can provide strength and stability. And here's here's the irony of these verses. When we worship idols and when the people of Israel turned to worship the idol gods of the pagans, what they were doing is they were not only diminishing God's character, but they were turning away from the only source of kingship and of savior and of security that they knew. They were turning away from the only source that was good. And they were looking for these things. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for stability in other idol gods. And I would suggest to you functionally that this is what we do. When we turn to our idols, what we do is we say, God, I know that you can be this for me, but instead I'm going to look for these character traits elsewhere. So practically speaking, we can turn to the idol of maybe our spouse. Maybe we can turn to the idol of our husband and we look to our husband to be our ultimate king rather than Jesus Christ. We anticipate that he would give us perfect direction, that he would give us perfect leadership. And husbands, you and I both know that we cannot provide our families and our wives with perfect leadership, with perfect direction, with perfect commands. Only Jesus Christ, only God is king. Functionally, when we turn to the idol of food, we look for it to be our savior rather than God to be our redeemer because we want it to save us from the sadness that we feel. We want it to save us from the emptiness that is inside or maybe the stress that's going on in our lives. Functionally, we turn to food to be our redeemer rather than God. We can turn to the idol of money 
for security. This is one that, uh, as we have been talking about idolatry for the summer that Shelley and I have talked about and how we can very easily allow money to be our security. We can allow the idol of money to be our rock rather than the idol of God. And we turn to our savings account, to our investment portfolios, to our fixed assets, maybe to our own business savvy. And we turn to those things and we find security in them rather than turning to God who alone is our rock. And so the first devastation of idolatry is that we diminish God's character. And so if somebody were to look at us and we are in the midst of allowing uh, the idol of money to be our security, and somebody would look at us, they would say, you are no different than anybody else. You are handling this financial crisis just like anybody else would. You're handling this job loss just like anybody else would. You're handling this bad housing market just like anybody else would because God is a unique God and when we serve him then we are unique but instead we turn to our idols and we make God look impotent. So number one, the first devastation of idolatry is that we diminish God's character. Number two, the second devastation of idolatry is that idolatry leads to shame. Look with me again at verses 9 through 11. Idolatry inevitably leads to shame. I'll just read verses 9 through 11 again. All who make idols are nothing, and all in the things that they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own, what church? Shame, to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and, and shame. So the drumbeat of this little section is that idolatry not only diminishes God's character in our lives, but it It leads us to being ashamed. It leads us to being ashamed because the idols can never deliver what we anticipate. Idols, we've said it again, and I'll say it again. We've said it before and I'll say it again. Idols never deliver what they promise. They never bring us the satisfaction, the joy. They cannot deliver. And so inevitably, one day, the point of this little section is that we will be ashamed in this lifetime or the next time when we worship idols. And so practically, idolatry not only leads to shame in these people's lives, it's so easy for us in our modern mindset to look back at these people and we're like, well, of course they're going to be put to shame. They're worshiping a block of wood who they think is going to make it rain. Okay, they're going to be put to shame. It's, we, we, we can see that in their lives and how shameful it is to worship an idol in that context because the idol won't deliver. But what about us? I would suggest to you that our idolatry leads to just as much shame. And so, for instance, when we worship the idol of work, one day we might feel a great amount of shame when our kids are distant from us, when they don't call us like we want them to, when they don't come visit us like they want, uh, like we want them to, because we've worshipped the idol of our work and we have foolishly traded in our kids for a few extra bucks. We will be ashamed in that day if we worship the idol of work. We will be ashamed if we worship the idol of our, of our children. The day might come when you say goodbye to your, to your youngest child and they move away to college or on their own and you might be stuck and you get back in, you, in your car and you look at your spouse and you look at them and you say, I don't really know you. In fact, I don't particularly like you. Um, We will be terribly ashamed when we worship the idol of our children, when we worship our kids, when we worship our kids. We have traded in a, a lifetime of kid worship, of child worship, 
rather than pursuing healthy relationships with our spouse. We will be ashamed when we one day, when we one day stand before Jesus Christ as believers in him and we sit at the judgment seat of Christ, there might very well be a great amount of shame when we stand before our king and he asks us what we did with our time and money and talents and efforts and giftedness and we have worshipped the idol of possessions. We have lived for our toys, for our boats, for our houses, for our clothes, for our gadgets. None of those things are wrong, but when we live for them and pursue them, we may stand before Jesus Christ one day and feel extremely ashamed because we have lived a life pursuing pleasure rather than having a life of significance. Idolatry leads to shame. The, the, the third uh, devastation, not only does idolatry diminish God's character, not only does it make us lead to shame, but number three, I, I insinuated this before, idolatry never delivers. It never delivers. That is, idols never deliver on what we anticipate them delivering. I ran across a, an article, and, and I want to share it with you. In brief, uh, the story, as the story goes, there was a, a man by the name of Charlie. Now, he was into horse betting, and so he would frequently visit tracks, and uh, he would bet and, you know, win some and lose some. And so one day, he uh, ran across what was an unusual sight. And so he was uh, kind of behind the scenes, and he was perusing the horses that had yet, yet to race. And he noticed that there was, there was a Catholic priest. And he thought, this is an odd place for a Catholic priest to be. And so he kind of took notice of the Catholic priest and what he was doing. And he noticed that the Catholic priest was kind of uh, placing his hands on one particular horse and seemed to be giving the horse a blessing. And so he said, this is odd. And so he took notice of what horse it was that the priest was blessing. And so he uh, watched the race and lo and behold, that horse that the the priest had blessed won. And so he said, well, that's odd. I'm going to take note again. And so before the next race, he went back and he watched this Catholic priest and the the priest did uh, this ritual again and he blessed the horse and he said, I'm just going to bet a small wager. And so he bet like five bucks that this particular horse would win. Well, lo and behold, that horse won. And so he said, something is going on here. And so he went and he got all of his money, all of his life savings. And he had seen the priest do this two or three or four times and the horses had won. And so the biggest race of the day was coming up and he stood and he waited uh, with anticipation on what horse this priest would bless. And so he saw the horse and he saw the priest and he saw, you know, the priest doing something similar to what he had done before. And so he took the name of the horse and he went and he said, I'm going to bet all, all the money, right? All the marbles, if you will. <clears throat> On this particular horse. Well, lo and behold, uh, he was watching uh, the horse race and the horse that he had bet all of his life savings on came in dead last came in dead last. And so as you can imagine, he was he was devastated. And so he said, what had happened? It had worked every single time before. And so he went and he kind of perused the crowd and he eventually found the priest that had been blessing the horses. And so Charlie asked him, what happened to the last horse? I mean, what happened to the last horse that you blessed? Why didn't he win like all the others? And as the story goes, he says, that's the trouble with you Protestants. You can't tell the difference between a blessing and a last rite. You know, <clears throat> the point in, the, in this third section is that when we turn to idols, 
When we turn to idols, they never deliver on what we promise. And so when we worship idols, essentially we're very much like Charlie. We're betting on a horse that can never win. We're betting on a horse that has just had its last right. We're betting on a horse that will for certain lose. It will not provide for us what we want. And so in this, this kind of middle section, verses 12 through 17, the point of that long section is this. God shows us how people made idols back then. I don't know if you noticed the progression, but God showed us how idols were made. And he goes into some detail. He goes into the fact that the idol worshiper would plant the seed and that God would make it rain and then this beautiful tree would grow up and he'd cut down the tree and then he'd send it to the carpenter, right? And the carpenter would shape and fashion the idol and then the then the carpenter would send it to the blacksmith to put iron on. That's how idols were made. It was a long, lengthy, arduous process. But the point is is kind of culminated at the very end where he says that the guy bows down to this block of wood and he says, worship me. I mean, he says, deliver me, save me from who knows what. Save me from famine, save me from war, save me from sickness, save me from whatever it is. And, and he bows down to this block of wood, anticipating that this block of wood would deliver him. But of course it would not. And so I want to make a couple points. First of all, what we see in this passage is that idols are limited. Idols are limited by a couple things. Number one, idols are limited by their makers. Do you notice in verse 12 and 13, the point that he wants to make is that idols are limited in what they can do because of their makers. That is, human beings make them. Look with me at verse 12 again. Verse 12 says this. <clears throat> verse 12. I have revealed and I have... No, there we go. Sorry, wrong verse 12. The blacksmith makes a tool and works on it with the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arms. And then what happens? Idols are limited by their makers because the guy who is making the idol gets hungry. He loses his strength. He doesn't drink water and he grows faint. And so first of all, we see that idols are inherently limited by their makers, i.e. if you are making a God and you get tired in the act of making that God, what makes you think that that God has any more strength than you? That's the point that Isaiah is making. But I would suggest to you that our idols are limited by their makers as well because we don't, in these days, at least not in America, bow down to wooden idols, but indeed we have many, many idols in America. Pastor Blake Jennings says this. He rightly points out that our idols are limited by by their makers too. He says this, all idols, <clears throat> all idols are made by human beings and that's their problem. We print money, we define beauty, we build our careers, we accumulate education, we invent technology, we build families and we build ministries. Idols depend upon us for their existence. So why would we depend upon them for anything else? And so first of all, our idols are limited because we set them up on the pedestals of our hearts. Number two, idols are limited not only by our by their makers, but by their materials. Did you notice uh, the rich sarcasm and irony in verses 14 and 17? Basically, what God says is, it's just a block of wood. You heat it and you throw it in the fire and you cook your dinner and you warm yourself with that block of wood. With half of that block of wood, you provide for yourself. And then the other half of that block of wood, 
You bow down to it and you form an idol from it. And the point is simply this. He says they're limited not only by their makers, us, but they're limited inherently. Our idols are limited by their materials. That is what they are in and of themselves. We idols don't deliver. They cannot deliver what we anticipate because they're man-made and they don't have the power inherently in them. So I would suggest to you then that our idols are limited by their materials too. Think about it. Just think about it. The idol of money. What does it look like when we worship the idol of money? Does the idol of money have inherent power to do what we want it to do? It's limited because the idol of money loses its power when the value of the dollar plummets, does it not? Just like that. All this money that we think we have, the dollar goes south and there it goes. The idol of, of money fails. There's a stock market crash. There's a real estate crisis. All of these things, to some degree, we've experienced. There have been people who have had stocks and their retirement was set. And then in a matter of hours, they don't have any retirement anymore. That's because inherently, the materials of idols don't have power. The idol of romance. The idol of romance can lose its power at the whim of a partner. Have you ever thought about that? You're worshiping this idol, this man, this woman, you're seeking significance, you want uh, something that only God can provide if you're uh, worshiping this particular man or woman. And just at the, at the flip of a hat, they can just say, I don't want you anymore. And your idol crushes you, if you will. In our modern mindset, we look at this guy And he shapes the idol and he makes the idol and he bows down to it and he thinks that he can be saved by this idol and we're like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, you're, you're so stupid. What makes you think that this block of wood can deliver you from famine or war or disease or, uh, whatever it is? What makes you think that? And yet, our idols never deliver either. We are this man. This is a picture of idolatry. The idol of romance does not deliver. It cannot deliver what we want. The idol of romance can never deliver the unconditional love that only God can give us. The idol of romance cannot provide the escape from an inner sense of loneliness that only God can do. The idol of pleasure, maybe uh, as Solomon said in uh, his his writings, uh, the, the idol of pleasure of alcohol, maybe abusing alcohol. This idol of pleasure cannot deliver us from broken marriages. It can't deliver us from uh, a job loss. It can't deliver us from a stressful uh, work environment. It can't deliver us from financial problems. The idol of beauty, how about that one? We spend tons of money every year, effort to maintain our beauty. And while that's not inherently wrong, what I would suggest to you is that any idol is limited by its maker and by its materials. And regardless of what we do, the idol of beauty cannot be sustained. It cannot deliver us because ultimately time will take it and fade it away. The point that I want us to see is that the third devastation of idolatry is that our idols cannot deliver what we anticipate. They will always fail and we will always be frustrated. Number four, the fourth devastation of idolatry. Idolatry leads to spiritual blindness. We've seen three already. Idolatry diminishes God's character. It leads us to shame. It cannot deliver. And the fourth devastation is that it leads us to being spiritually blind to the idolatry in our life. Let's read verses 18 through 20 again. Notice the emphasis here. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes, notice this image, their eyes, that is idol worshipers, their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds are closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think. 
No one has knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals and I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? And so the fourth devastation of idolatry is that when we are caught in the grips of idolatry there is a spiritual covering of our eyes there is something that is plastered over our eyes just like this idol worshiper and we can't look at what we're bowing down to this idol that maybe we hold in our right hand we can't look at the idol of money or the idol of wealth or the idol of security or the idol of our spouse or the idol or the idol of our kid what happens is we look at the idols that we have in our right hand and we don't say like this man is this not a lie We don't recognize that this is not a good God when we don't recognize that they cannot deliver what we anticipate delivering. I want to share with you this quote. Uh, Oz Guinness and John Seal says this, and if, if it's true, then it's a startling fact about the evangelical church. He says, idolatry, they say idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, here's the point, yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. There can be no believing communities, that is churches, without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. And so the main point of of this last little section is that when we are caught in the grips of idols, we may not know it. And so here's here's what I've been praying for this whole series, and I want to hear from you. Good stories. Um, but Shelley and I, we've been praying for you guys that God would take the plaster off the eyes of our hearts and that God would be exposing idols in our hearts and in our lives because here at Grace, I want us, I want us to love God with all of our hearts and minds and souls and strength and I want Him to truly be our God in every way, shape or form and I want that for myself. I want God and we've been praying, God, reveal the idols in our hearts. We are spiritually blind to the idolatry in our life. We think it's just a sin. We think it's just a habit. We think it's just something that we do. It's part of our character. But if we search the depths of why we do things, and hopefully as we've talked about all of these things, all of these potential idols, hopefully the plaster over your eyes have ha, have been taken away, has been taken away, and you have begun to realize this may be an idol in my life. I may be worshiping this rather than Jesus Christ. This is my prayer. So by means of application, here's Here's a tough homework assignment, but I challenge you to do it. It can be with your spouse, it can be with a good friend, um, or it can be with somebody that you know you just trust. And here's here's the here's the homework assignment. Go to someone you trust, someone who you know is a Christian, someone who maybe that knows you and you trust, and is you are willing to be vulnerable with them and they with you, and ask them a simple question: What might be some of the idols in my life? Simple question. I'll ask that to Shelly. In fact, I asked her that yesterday uh, as we were doing yard work, and I'll ask her again. Because if this is true, and sometimes we're blind to our own idols, then we need people's help. We need people's help to say, I love you. Here's what I think you may be worshiping rather than God. And so that's your closing homework assignment. So uh, as we as we look anticipate next week, we're going to talk about destroying idols. 
We're going to talk about how people in the Old Testament look and, and, and physically destroy their idols and turn back towards God. How we can destroy our idols and then be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I um, encourage you to do that next week. Uh, again, um, we're going to be having some fun. It'll be a, a, a unique and different communion experience as we begin to destroy the idols in our life and uh, worship Jesus Christ. Let's pray.